Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Professor Mamukheti Packing, Vice Chancellor of the University of Cape Town and winner of the inaugural Africa Education Medal, which recognizes the tireless work of those who are transforming education across Africa. It was launched by T4 Education and HP in collaboration with Intel and Microsoft, and I'm delighted that here's an initiative that's driving forward SDG4 Education. So without further ado, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today and uh, many congratulations on uh, on winning the inaugural Africa Education Medal. That's uh, that's no small feat. Thank you very much. I'm I'm very pleased. I mean, I, I didn't expect it, but somehow this medal, I mean, I've won many awards, but this medal is very special because it's about something that I do um, because I'm passionate about and it literally changed my life. Excellent. So you're out there in Cape Town in South Africa. I'm here in London in the UK. Not much time difference, which is great. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, not just the medal itself, but tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, give us a little bit of a flavor. I mean, I I, I was born at a at a very interesting time in um, at a time when black people were being moved from. Uh, areas that were uh, now uh, designated to be occupied by white people in the late 60s, 1966, late in the year. And um, and frankly speaking, my life was, my my birth was, was miraculous. And in a way, my life has unfolded uh, in a miraculous way. You know, um, I, I'd like to believe that. I mean, it was a miraculous death, in, birth in the sense that I was, I was born in a, in a sack. I'm one of those cow babies. Uh, and I was born on the 1st of November in a Roman Catholic clinic because there were no clinics then for black people. And, and all, on All Saints Day, the 1st of November. And, and, and that miraculous birth and or that disruptive birth, um, uh, in a way, as I look back, I think it made a way for, for a miraculous life. Um, in my whole life, I've lived in the rural village of Marapiani, uh, spent most of my youth in the township of Harangua because people who lived in Eastwood, where black people were forcibly removed, were moved to Harangua as one of the townships. And uh, I went to seven different schools in 12 years in basic education, 12 years of basic education, seven different schools. Um, and for different reasons, some of the reasons were socioeconomic situation at home. Some of them were political because the country was changing. Homelands were being introduced. Some of it was, um, you know, because parents were looking for a nearby school or a better school. So a variety of reasons. Uh, but all of that, as much as it looks like a disadvantage for a young girl who started school at five years going for six, um, uh, I mean, I've never spent more than two years in one school in 12 years. And all of that has worked well for me, you know. So, so that's why I look at everything and it seems like everything that could have been a challenge or a disadvantage worked well for me. I can only say that in retrospect. Um, and, and so it's been a miraculous life and, and I never thought starting school under a tree that I'll end up being vice chancellor of the top university on the continent. But here I am. And, and, and I always say to young people, 
You should look at your life all the time. And as you tell your story, uh, look at it as a story of victory because it could have been worse. And, and I see my, my life is a story of victory. And, 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 and in between the under a tree to the vice chancellor's office at the University of Cape Town is a lot of uh, challenges. But if you think about it, winning against um, or surviving the system or winning against adversity, uh, but here it is. Um, and a lot of hard work. I don't want to put that aside. There's a lot of work and sweat and tears sometimes, but here we are. Remarkable, absolutely remarkable and so inspiring. Now, obviously, you're academically gifted, but there are many people who are academically gifted and don't seize the opportunity, don't 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 put in the labor, you know, that you need to, to make things happen. And I think um, you definitely have had to put in a lot of work. Let me ask you, though, in terms of, so you said 1966. I was born. We're looking at the 70s, and I remember also the the 80s, a very, very challenging time uh, in South Africa for someone who's not white. And uh, tell me a little bit about, A, when did you start noticing that, hey, you know what, when it comes to um, academic endeavors, I'm quite good. When did you notice how that was progressing? And then also when things started changing in, in the political context where you thought, you know what, maybe something that I thought was impossible because of the political structures that were constraining us. Um, actually, things are changing. Maybe I can do something and uh, and really break these barriers. Mm, interesting. I mean, the thing is, uh, throughout basic education, I never thought I'm academically gifted. I mean, somehow okay. I don't think so. I still don't think so. I think part of what I have become is um, believing that I can do it, whether there's a gift or not. And, 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 and when I was, when we were at school, when we were young, my dad, I grew up in a family, um, my dad and my grandfather, looking back, I realized how much of a motivation they were to us. My dad made us believe that we were the smartest in the township. Even though I wasn't the smartest in class, I wasn't obtaining position one, I was in the top 10, you know, you know, the teachers loved, I loved doing the homework because I liked I like showing up as one of the smart ones. I always made sure that I did the homework, but it's not like I always hit the, the top learner in class. I was always in the top 10, in, in sometimes top five. Um, but my dad always said, you are the smartest. No kid can beat you in this township. He drummed it into us. And what he would do on Saturdays when he, he's got visitors, he would call me and my sister. And we are sort of like 18 months, 20 months apart. Okay of age and we grew up like twins he would call us and say uh, to his friends ask them anything my children are the smartest no kid can beat them and we would sit stand there scared but i mean many of them were not educated so they would ask sort of uh, logic questions problem solving questions um newspaper questions things like that like you know and and i being who i am i always say to my sister i saved her because i always wanted to get it right and we always got it right. And then, you know, and then we'd show up as smart and you say, he would say, you see, I told you. And then we'd go and my sister would say, next time he calls us, we should get it wrong. He'll never call us again. And I still wouldn't play along, you know. So, so in, in a way, I would say what, what served me well as a young person was that there was always someone who believed in me. 
Mm. And I think that's powerful because it really doesn't matter what happens at school. It doesn't matter who says what out there in the street. My dad drank alcohol. We didn't have a lot of money. We would spend nights. We were studying with my mom. We started as a domestic worker. But in our heads, it was drummed. You are the smartest. And my grandfather would say, he had nine children, and he would say, I know that many years from now in the world, when they talk, call the top 10 people in any field, one of my children is going to show up. You, because you are smart. And it's interesting. He was an orphan. He didn't have, I mean, they basically were poor. They didn't have cows. They had nothing, you know. So I think a belief in, in, in me help, helped in that. And if I were to tell the story in detail, I would say even my love for mathematics was because when I did grade, um, grade seven, my mathematics teacher believed that I could beat his daughter, who was my age, going to a better school and doing very well. And if a daughter get a 90, she would say, you've got to get that. And we'd get punished. I would get punished for that. Others would get punished for the fact that they didn't pass. I would get punished because I didn't get the score that his daughter got. But that, again, communicates the belief that you, you are brilliant and you can do this. And I think the only time that the light shone that I can do this, I think that's when I was a postgrad, you know? And probably when I moved from uh, the master's to go a PhD or perhaps from an honors to a, to a master's, uh, because then that's when, um, I mean, first of all, I was at Vets University. Um, and at, it's, at Vets University is the first time where you sit side by side with, um, uh, students from other races with white students. And when Indian. was that? When was that? The first time I did that was 1989. Mm -hmm. And so when I was doing my postgrad at VETS, that's when you see not only uh, uh, diverse students in terms of race, but also in terms of culture, everything, right? And 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 when when I finished my honors, that the, the fact that there were there was more than one professor who said, "I would like to supervise you for a master's. Don't you want to do a master's?" I thought, wow, you know, I mean, of course, I've been getting good grades for my assignments and for my exams, uh, but it was fascinating that I want to do a master's and literally I have a choice. I can say I want this one or that one, you know, um, and that's when I thought, damn, there must be something about me. Clearly, I'm, I'm smart. Otherwise, why would they work with me? Because, you know, as you go into postgrad, it's not just about, it's not memorizing what you have, it's what you think, it's how you engage, whatever. I think that's when the penny dropped, that um, I, I do have something special. Otherwise, I didn't think I had something special. I thought, work hard, and I can live to what my dad, live up to what my dad say I am. I can live up to what other people say I am. And at postgrad, it was like, you can do this because you have something special to offer. Excellent. Now, did you know that you wanted to get into the world of academia? In other words, you, you, you recognize in yourself that you had this gift and this ability, but obviously with mathematics, you could also go into, into a million different fields. Yeah. And uh, so you were the first black woman South African to achieve a PhD in mathematics education. Yep. Did you know that you wanted to get into academia uh, versus finance or some other field? I didn't know. My parents wanted me to be a doctor, but but because I was I was doing well in maths. But I figured that I'm I'm gonna have to do biology, 
which is something that I didn't like. You know, mathematics worked for me. And I wasn't sure that I'm going to do mathematics. So, so it's not, and, and fortunately, my undergraduate degree had education. So education was a compulsory major because it was in a homeland. It was in a homeland and the homeland of Buputatswana had started this University of Buputatswana. And because they wanted to produce professionals, government workers, people who can work in the homeland, there was teaching every degree in the university was a professional degree. And, and they focus on the professions that um, uh, the, the homeland needs as a priority. So education was one of those. So, so mine was a four-year degree and education was a compulsory thing. And I loved mathematics. And I thought, I, will, I don't mind. I, what can I do with mathematics? Nobody told me. I thought, I'll go and teach. So when I completed I went into teaching because, again, I did education and I loved it, you know. And, and so I went into mathematics teaching and actually into mathematics teaching in a college of education. So all my life before I went into academia, I was I was I did mathematics. I was math teaching mathematics at a college, at schools. And then I went into the NGO world in 1994. Crazy story as the country uh, was getting its liberation and people were moving away from from NGOs. I went into the NGO world. For me, it had nothing to do with the politics. It had it was the attraction of working in the farm schools, in the place that needed my skills the most because I had been exposed to farm schools. I thought, I want to work with, with the farm schools. And, and then it was when I was in the farm schools that I was doing post-grad, part-time at vets, uh, when I finished my master's, that, that's when I thought, I want to do this. And, and it was an inspiration of a of a white woman professor, Professor Jill Adler, that I looked at her doing her thing, you know? And, and I kept, I mean, and he was so, I mean, you should remember that Professor Adler started teaching me just during apartheid, 1989. That's the first time I met her. And, and you see her doing this thing and she was so caring and she was so, you know, and, I, and she impacted me so much that I thought I can do this because she made me believe in myself as well. You know, she made me realize, wow, this kid, I could do this, you know. And at the end of the master's, as I was submitting my master's research report, I said to her, she asked me, so what's next? I was working in the NGO world. And I said, I'm, go I'm going, co going to continue working in the NGO. But, um, uh, and she said, what do you want to do for the future? Is, are you going to stay there forever? And, and I said, I would love to do your work, your job. I'd love to have your job. And she said, <laughs> My job? I said, well, not your job, job, but your kind of work. And then she said, sit down, let me tell you about it. And she's the one, actually, who told me about academia. And she said, you'll be great at it. Mm. Do it. You need the license to practice, she said. And the license to practice is a PhD. And she said, consider it. Come back to me when you're ready. Wow. And that's how it started. And, and I said to her, I'd love that. And so before I got a job, she invited me to be a research assistant in 1996 in her research group. And I had a master's degree and that opened. And I agreed. My, my, friend, my friends thought I'm crazy. I hope you agree to be a research assistant, like doing this job for people. And at that time, you should remember 1996, South Africa was still changing. And so research groups are, are white, basically, and I'm the only black person and, and I have a master's degree and I'm the research assistant. I'm basically 
you know, setting up the room, getting the readings and, you know, doing coffee sometimes, organi organizing that there's coffee and biscuits for everyone. Uh, and some of the people in the research group uh, had only master's degrees. And, and I said to my friends, I know what I'm doing. I want a career. And this is it. It's my way in to academia. And I'm glad I grabbed that opportunity. I, I always pay tribute to Professor Jill Adler because she opened up this possibility and being in the researchers being a research assistant in a large group led by a top academic is such a bonus that it it made me it taught me more things than doing a phd could have you know so when we graduated with my friends they were all getting phds i was getting a damn career and it was huge and that's why i'm here today amazing and now you well so many questions I want to ask you. On the one hand, how welcoming was that environment? So you said 96 and mainly white colleagues. Um, how how um, psychologically or emotionally, how did you feel? How warm or otherwise was that setting? Not someone who's just allowed to be here, but actually genuinely feeling that they're part of the team and, and being embraced. How was it? You know, it was for me, it was it was a welcoming space because the leader of the research project was someone who had who I had met at my honors level. She supervised me for the honors. She supervised me for the masters. So she knew what I have to offer. So um, as the leader of the research group, she knew my capability and drew on them. And so it positioned me well, because it's not like, you know, sometimes you, you join these white groups and they start with a deficit, like you're not good enough. So you, you need some help here, help there. And, and in my case, there was someone who knew me, who knew that I deliver, I get things done. And so it could depend on me. We're going to collect data, whether it was we're going to collect data in Limpopo or whatever. She knew that I would organize the data collection and I'll be there and and we would get there, you know, if things will happen. So, so it didn't, it didn't affect me. Of course, once in a while, I could see, ah, these ones who don't have master, who don't have PhDs, I would look at them. And I didn't mind because I kept thinking, hey, one day, they are going to call me doctor. I'm going to be their boss one day. So I didn't care about the other people, the leader. It was important for me that the leader believed in me. The other people were not necessarily discriminatory to me. They got on doing their own things. And you know, and, and so, and, and, and at the same time, I mean, I'm very open. So I was, I, I would challenge people. My supervisor knew that I would challenge her and other people if I felt um, that things were not going according to how they should. At the same time, I mean, I mean, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I, I'm, I'm very much committed to principle. I mean, I think the second year, in that research group, we got the second person who, a second black person who worked as a okay. recipient. And he was a male. Um, and as we went on one of these trips to collect data in the north of the country, um, and him and I are working together, but I mean, I'm used to doing this. And we, we get there, we get to Venda, um, uh, which is an area in the north. And uh, at the hotel, I don't drink alcohol. Never did, but he did. So we get to the hotel and I sit with him and chatting about tomorrow this, tomorrow that. And she od he orders one and he says, let's drink. I mean, these white people are using us. We must, we must pay. So I said to him, no, I, I don't drink, but but hey, 
look here, I need this research assistantship job to continue. So please slow down on this because if they pay and the grant get, like, runs out, we're going to lose this. You know what I mean? Like I was, I was more interested in, <laughs> I want this, I don't want this experience to end because the money runs out because we busy squandering on, on, on alcohol. But so, so my attitude was a little bit different in a way, in, in that way. She, he was seeing it as a get back at them. And I was seeing it as I'm going to get something out of this and I'm going to make the most of the time. And I think there's different, there's always different perspectives in situations like those, um, whether they come from the other side of the one side or the other. Um, and, and, and my approach is always, what's the opportunity here? Because there's always opportunity and you can't allow always that your anger carries you through all the time. Mm, I love it. I love it. The um, the fact that you're now vice chancellor at the University of Cape Town, uh, yeah. being vice chancellor is a, it has a, a I would say a fairly uh, not just a prestige but it has a certain administrative burden one could say right. In other words, do you get to teach and research as much as you would like? No, I don't. I don't. Actually, since I became vice chancellor, it's even worse. I don't. When I was deputy vice chancellor, I did some guest lectures and I had a student. I still have a student, PhD student who needs to finish. I have a co-supervisor. Uh, I'm on sabbatical now because I've, I'm finishing my end of term, but my first term and I'm starting my, my second term next year. Uh, and I'm doing some writing and, you know, and, and it's important work for me because um, scholarship um energizes me it reinvigorates me you know so so i'm yeah but but the work of the vice chancellor is an interesting job because it it's administrative and you draw more on on who you are i mean i, I keep thinking why do they need um an established scholar for this job frankly speaking it's only for the credibility it's because the professors are so difficult they will not listen to you if you don't have the <laughs> academic stature so the academic stature comes there that's it from there on is intellectual strength emotional strength political savviness all of that you know it's it's, it's it, the, your, your academic strength helps here and there but it's really in my view it's really 30 percent. but it's really credibility once the people have credibility what you deliver on has got nothing to do with your academic strength in fact people with lower academic uh, uh, capacities can deliver better you know, so 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 it's 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 the other things that that matter. But and it's a tough job. It's much tougher than being CEO because with a university vice chancellor, you're leading smart people. I'm not saying people in corporates are not smart, but it's smart people who get brought into the same space. Some get brought because they go against the grain. You precisely want to hire them because they are critical of what you're doing. You know, you whereas in a company, you wouldn't hire someone who's critical of your product, you know, but in, 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 in a university, you'd hire them sometimes precisely because they're critical. Uh, they're bringing a, a, a different view, a critical view, an alternative view, and you want this diversity of people and ideas, ways of thinking. Uh, out of that, something powerful can emerge as you, as you look sometimes at the same problem, sometimes at different problems. Um, and, and, and I think that's the difference because there, there is nothing in an environment of, of academia. Uh, uh, people are much more comfortable 
to say to you as vice chancellor, we don't agree with you and we are not going to do it. And you can't fire them for that. But if you are CEO of a corporate, looking at the bottom line, we are going to fire you. But as vice chancellor, I go, bring it on, bring it on. What is it? Why don't you agree with me? Let's hear it. Let's put it on the table. Let's engage. I'd love to be a fly on the wall in those meetings. <laughs> I hope there's no, there are no chairs being thrown around uh, during the thing. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Not in my tenure, at least. No, they, they have been thrown by university before with my predecessor, not in my tenure. I'm with you. I'm with you. And so you've seen, well, first of all, you've been not just fortunate in terms of being gifted, but I think uh, you put in the, the hard work and also you've been very fortunate in the people who've surrounded you, right? Family, uh, colleagues, mentors, people who've really instilled confidence and encouraged you along the way, which I think it's it's not always the case. There's so many people who who lack that. Um, and and now you're in a position of of consequence as well. So even though you may not do as much research as you would like, you still drive forward the field by being able to, you know, be captain of this really big ship that yeah. has a lot of uh, stakeholders and a lot of new minds, new new generations coming through those doors that that you're able to help ensure have a smooth journey and a very fruitful journey. You know, Sustainable Development Goal 4, education, is one of the ones that's closest to my heart. And um, in Sub-Saharan Africa, the stats are not good. And uh, especially now coming out of the pandemic, especially if we look at girls' education, so many kids who are not in school who don't have the supporting family settings. What can you do? How do you see, you know, I'm just thinking about the people who listen to this. A lot of people who listen to our our, our shows are in the foundations world or in the front lines in education um, or are philanthropists. But what's your, it's a very broad question, but what can we do to improve the state of affairs in education, uh, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, especially where so many of the indicators are are not as favorable as you'd have elsewhere? I mean, I think there's a, there's a lot that we can do. There's a variety of things that we can do and people at different spaces, in different spaces. I mean, I think people who are in uh, pre-service and in-service teacher education, they know what they need to do. I mean, I, I've been interested in pre-service education and um, particularly in South Africa, asking the question, what is it that goes into the training of our mathematics teachers? There's, we are not going to be able to do anything if until we correct that. But there's teachers in service. And then there's learners who are in school right now, even as we try to, to um, solve the big problem that our students going through school. So something has to be done there. And we at the University of Cape Town, last year we launched the UCT online high school. And the idea of the UCT online high school comes from recognizing the big challenges uh, in the continent regarding education, that too few children get access to quality teaching and learning. There are too few excellent teachers around. And so how can we draw on those excellent teachers to reach more students? And we thought, let's start at high school from grade eight. Uh, this year we do grade eight up to grade 11. 
And, and, and the online high school allows us to do that. But secondly, uh, many of the classrooms on this continent are overcrowded. I mean, the OECD, um, I think they give um, an average uh, classroom size, one is to 30, one is to 36. But in the continent, you can get anything from one is to 50 or even more in some classrooms. And so with the online high school, we, we can take some of those learners um, and have them learn there. By the way, the online high school, I, I will explain later that the, the, the platform that we've, we, we've created, the material is available to everyone free of charge. And then the students who register get more than just the material. So, so we, we, we making, we sort of shrinking the classroom through the online provision because you know, the teaching is asynchronous, the learning is, so children can have individual attention Mainstream schooling promises learners that they will get attention, they'll get the teacher's attention, but in a class of 50, 60, even 40, it's, it's impossible, okay? It's impossible for a teacher to do that. And more so in our classrooms on the continent where children come into school with so many gaps because of the quality of education throughout. They come into school with so many gaps. So to think that a teacher even if they have one is to 36 ratio, it is just not possible for a teacher to give individual attention. But we can do that with our platform. We've done it, we've designed a, a pedagogy that creates an opportunity for each learner to have a coach, each learner to have a session with the lecture, with the teacher. Uh, but also we do not proceed. A child cannot proceed to the next concept until they've mastered the one that they have. So, so it's one model that we believe that it can create a possibility for the continent at high school level, at least, to go in. And so people are so, but how can you do this? Many learners on the continent do not have hardware, do not have data, or they're in areas where there's no network. And my view is that there are many companies out there that, that, that can intervene when it comes just to hardware, and some of these learners, by the way, are in areas where, in fact, there's network. Some companies can come in with data. Um, you know, just even if you attend to that, it will be a large group of learners uh, that will have access to quality teaching. And with quality teaching, you stand a chance to get quality learning. You stand a chance of getting quality uh, students getting out and then having an opportunity to pursue post-school education that many of our children in this continent don't get because they don't have quality basic education. So I think that's, that's one opportunity. And we as a university, even though we are not in basic education, people said to me, why do you go into that space? We, as the University of Cape Town, cannot afford to be an island of excellence in the continent. Sit and watch the continent struggle with basic education when in fact we can inject our excellence in a particular area, work with partners, we work with NGOs, we're trying out a micro school, a micro school approach. Uh, we're working with the South African Human Rights Commission in a rural village in KwaZulu-Natal and, and an NGO working with us that's children who can teach at, which learn at home but they're in the online high school, they come to a central environment with a mentor, but they're engaging with the school. And that's what we're trying to say, what, what's, what can be a solution here? And I think there's a space for every corporate, every educator, and those people who are saying, but I don't have, I can't offer anything. Here's the thing, 
speak well of education, preach the potential that education has to solve our problems of poverty, of inequality. You're talking about SDG 4. My view is that that SDG actually has an impact on all the other SDGs. If we get that right, we have a chance of achieving in all the other SDGs. Absolutely. As everyone has got a role to play. Absolutely. Yeah, without SDG 4, there would be nobody educated enough to tell you about any other SDG. <laughs> the, um, the website address, what's the website address of this online uh, platform? UCTOnlineHighSchool.com Excellent. And anybody is welcome to take a look at that and, and make use of the, uh, of the resources there. Everyone can take a look at that, make use of the resources. Uh, uh, but if you want your learner to get your child to get attention, personal attention, study with the school, you apply for registration. We are a cheap, the cheapest private school in South Africa. Excellent. Tell me, do you have a key takeaway? What's the key thing you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to, uh, to today's episode? Ooh, um, I think I think it's that the, the fact that you know you always have to look at your story as ending victoriously. It doesn't matter how tough the beginning is. Make sure that it ends on the point of victory. Never position yourself as a victim. It doesn't matter how hard life is, whether it's apartheid, whether it's poverty, make sure that it's a story of victory. And if you if you work it out that way you can have victory in your career and generally in your life. I could be sitting here and telling you a story of a victim who lost who needs help, uh, but I choose to look on the other side. There's always a silver lining. And so you can always have victory at the end. Talk about inspirational. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Do One Better podcast. I, I loved the... Uh, uh, hearing your story, learning about your work, and and the passion you're bringing to this. Very inspirational, not just to me, but I think to everybody around. And congratulations once again on, on the inaugural Africa Education Medal. And um, it's, uh, it's a great uh, privilege uh, to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks so much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Professor Mamukheti Packing, Vice Chancellor of the University of Cape Town and winner of the inaugural Africa Education Medal. For information about this episode and nearly 200 other interviews and case studies with remarkable leaders, just visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. I very much enjoyed putting together today's episode, producing it for you. Thanks so much for listening, for tuning in, and I look forward to catching up with you next week.